of The Ladies' Room, along with Jane McManus. I'm Julie DeCaro. We are your hosts. Guess what? You're getting just us this week, and here's why. We have a terrific guest who we were so excited to have on last week when we recorded, and unfortunately, she came down ill um, and was unable to do the podcast. She's okay. Um, She is an icon in sports reporting, so we really want to make sure she takes good care of herself. So we will have her on uh, in the near future, but for this week, it's just going to be me and Jane, which is fine because we have plenty to talk about, right, Jane? A hundred percent, and we will get to the meat of what we're going to be talking about a little bit later, but in the meantime, it is this week a year officially of a pandemic, and it's interesting to me because really we mark the year, I think, in sports by Rudy Gobert and the and the NBA shutting down. Yeah, poor Rudy Gobert, because I I remember at the time, you know, everyone calls him patient zero, which is kind of hilarious. But, um, you know, at the time, I remember watching that and being like, oh, my God, can you imagine if he had coronavirus and he did that? And then sure enough. But I, I think it was sort of, and Jane and I both wrote pieces of Deadspin today, sort of retrospectives. Mine was retrospective on what it was like. Hers is a retrospective on what we've learned about ourselves and each other. And, um, it, you know, it was so funny because at the time it, I never would have thought an NBA player is going to get COVID. It just still seems so remote at the time. Right. I just, I remember thinking about how he was, it's so funny to go back considering the year that we've all had. And I think, you know, it's important to note that it, this is something that even though we talk about it through the prism of sports has been so personal to each one of us who has who who has taken it seriously or lives with people that they want to protect, um, you know, and I think that's I think that's most of us, and I think it's a lot of sports fans also because we we don't go to games anymore in the same way that we used to. Um, but I just remember thinking when he tested positive, and then there were all of those other positive tests. Just thinking to myself, "Holy cow, this thing is so transmissible," and just that it dawned on me that we were just not safe anymore yeah. Uh, from, from this virus and what that could possibly mean. And, and I think, you know, all of the terrible things that played out politically in our country ended up playing out in sports as well. And in some ways, you know, I, I know, I know I, I've said this a number of times, but boy, you know, I believe in a lot of the things that sports try to teach us, I think like about, mm-hmm. you know, that teams are bigger than just one person and that you're giving to a community and it's working together and all of these different things. And we just didn't, you know, no. we just didn't. And sports didn't either. The economic interests came first, uh, except in places like the Ivy league and, um, and the historically black uh, colleges, because, you know, those, those seem to me to be leagues where, the economics didn't have to come first, the Ivy League, because they have so much money and endowments. And then historically black colleges, because their particular population of athletes and and professors were at higher risk of dying if they contracted the coronavirus. So they were they acted in a different way. Wimbledon, because they had pandemic insurance, was able to act in a way that didn't put economics first. But every other league followed the money. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And if you haven't checked out Jane's piece over at Deadspin, you absolutely should. Um, she did a great job. And, you know, I, I, um, you know, it's funny because I know whenever we talk about race issues or, you know, people say this is in America and, and black people are saying this has always been America. Um, I feel sort of the same way about the selfishness, you know, that I, I thought we were better than we turned out to be. And I guess that's my naivete and my privilege. Um, but, you know, I noticed, and Jane, in your piece, I know you mentioned um, youth sports following pro sports. The yeah. number of friends, of people that I think much less of now because of the way they behaved, acting like if their child did not have football or baseball, their lives were going to be ruined. Um, I, I was really shocked by some of the people that I've called friends, and I, I don't know that I consider them friends anymore. Um, but it, it, I, looking back on it, I thought that we were much less selfish and much more community oriented than we turned out to be. You know, we always have heard these stories growing up about how everybody pulled together during World War II and women went into the factories and everybody watched each other's kids and all this stuff so that America could win the war. Or I should say the allies won the war, not just America. But um, and, and I always assumed that if something really big happened, we would do that again. And we didn't. No. And we're still not. Right. Um, yeah. And so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm much more disillusioned with, uh, our lack of community, I guess, than I was before. hundred percent, you know, and, and we spent the last two years, uh, before, I guess I came back in, in 2019, but we, we spent two years in the UK and, you know, they're, they're everywhere. They wear poppies to commemorate, um, you know, the wars there and there's the tomb of the unknown. And there really is, you know, that kind of ideal really does still exist there. People yeah. kind of sacrificing for community. I just remember being struck when I, when I moved there about how different that was. And so to come back and to find it, to, to just kind of like self-interest going first, because a lot of those youth tournaments that you mentioned, you know, Arizona opened up, uh, particularly Phoenix so to host a lot of it. Well, they opened up in terms of what was allowed. And that meant that a lot of youth tournaments that weren't able to hold their tournaments in the traditional states where they had moved those tournaments to Arizona. Yeah. Um, and they found that there were some outbreaks that stemmed from those tournaments. So, you know, these are not, it's not without risk and people do get sick. And there are a number of athletes who got sick and are still struggling with long COVID. And yeah. you know, you've said this a number of times, Julie, but I mean, I, you know, we in this country have, over half a million people have died of the coronavirus. Um, it is by almost any measure far, far more than any other country has endured. And we've done it because we have not been able to put community over mm -hmm. uh, individual interests. And so a lot of these youth tournaments, they may not, you may not have had, you know, people, players or parents correct, contract the coronavirus and die, but who, you know, they took it back to their communities perhaps. Right. And we don't have the contract tracing, contact tracing in this country to be able to say, you know, that Sturgis led to, Sturgis motorcycle rally last summer led to X mm -hmm. numbers of coronavirus cases and death because we just aren't keeping track right. in the way that a lot of other countries are. But the numbers of people who have contracted this illness and died from it in this country speak for themselves. And it's it's the cumulative impact of all of these decisions putting individuals first. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, 
You know, I heard last night, um, I, I think on Lawrence O'Donnell's show that 1% of all grand, maybe it's Rachel Maddow, 1% of all grandparents in this country have died. 1% of all grandparents. Imagine how many people's grandparents that is. And one of the issues I feel like we really have in this country is this lack of compassion and caring until it happens to you. And then suddenly you care, whether it's guys saying, oh, I don't care about, I didn't care about sexism until I had daughters or, you know, whatever the issue is. Um, Just feel like we need to do a much better job of putting ourselves in other people's shoes. We just don't, you know, and and by and large, I think there's been a movement in this country to tell people you don't have to, you know, you don't looking out for number one is what you're supposed to do. It's what America's about and it's what you should do and screw everybody else. And, and that's an attitude that I really have a problem with. You know, and and I just I think I don't know that the commissioners of our professional leagues were necessarily saying that, but the way that they acted, I mean, uh, you know, you see what happened when a when a league when you know NCAA players don't have any representation, how they were thrown to the wolves, and right. thousands ended up um, getting the virus. And I just think, yeah, that was it. it. They they you know coaches, college coaches were saying the kids want to play, um, which you know. I'm sure they do want to play. And a lot of us wanted to go to restaurants or hug our grandparents or right. do other things as well. But, you know, it's the circumstances that get in the way, not individuals. No one's saying to you, you can't have this. It's that it's the proof right. thing to do given the circumstances we're facing. And that's um, the weirdness that you get from the right, right? Is they want to take this away. They want to take that away. I don't want to take anything away from people. I just want us all to be safe. Right. Right. But, and I think when you, when you have college coaches saying the kids want to play and therefore we're back in the gym and we're doing it, you know, then of course that's going to, it's, it's the example that's set the pros set the example. We're going to go back and play, um, but we're going to do it safely, right? We're going to do it in a bubble or we're going to have testing or whatever. And then you have colleges say, well, we're going to play too then. And then they don't go quite as far in terms of the safety um, because I, I don't think they take the threat as seriously uh, and the money is bigger and the athletes don't have a voice. And then you move down to youth sports and you say, well, we're going to play too, because we get all these fees from youth com- competitions and, and entry fees for these different tournaments. Yeah. But we can't take precautions because we can't afford testing. And so we're just going to kind of do it on the honor system. And, and it just ends up becoming that the virus just runs wild in this country because of all of those different decisions. And I feel like sports had a real opportunity to set an example here and declined. And I'm, you know, and to me, that's, you know, there were no PSAs about mask usage. A lot of times when you did see masks on the sideline, they were worn improperly. This is just, I mean, it was, it was a huge miss in terms of the platform that professional sports have in this country and the way that they can set the tone when it comes to something like this. And Literally the only time the NCAA has ever let the kids lead on everything else the kids want, they don't get, right? The kids need more money for food, right? The kids want a living wage. The kids want a cut of what they're bringing in. No, no, no. The kids want to play. Oh, fine. Yeah. Also, I have a 20 year old, a 19 year old, an 18 year old and a 20 year old. They don't get to decide the rules in our house because they are children. Their brains aren't even done growing yet. Of course they want to play. What else are they going to do? They're teenagers. Well, and they know, and, and they want to play because they, they know the calculus on this. If they don't play, then whatever dreams they have of professional sports in their future are gone. And so, and that is the calculus that they know is there. And so you don't want to be a team player right now. Great. Maybe some scout remembers that. Maybe you don't get a call because of that. 
you know, you, you have, you decide you don't want to play. You're definitely at the, at the college level. If your coach says you're playing, well, then you basically opted out of that career path. Right. Right. Yes. Okay. That well, that was a fun retrospective. (laughs) Selfishness and ignorance in America. Welcome. But it has to be said. It has to be said. And when we look back on this, I think this period of time, Julie, that we are going to be, it, you know, it's going to be with sadness for missed opportunities and for the, the mortality that that led to. Yeah. Um, Because the stakes are that high. Um, But to transition from that, which is incredibly difficult, (laughs) (laughs) but this week um, I got this wonderful book in the mail. It's called Sidelined sports culture and being a woman in America. And it is by you one Julie DeCaro. And I have Yay! to say that I, I am enjoying this book so much um, because you tell so many of the truths uh, that come with being in sports media in the current era that we're in. And, you know, because it's not just, oh, you want to be a woman in sports, you know, you must be crazy. Um, you kind of do have to be, I think, or you have to think you have to think somehow that you're not going to fall into the traps that have been set for you. And it's just, I I really like your book because I think it lays out what those traps are very cleanly. Um, but I want to start by asking you, because you put a lot of yourself and your own experiences into this book. And I think you could have done it two ways. You could have done it where you just discuss it from a kind of a third point, third person point of view. Um, but it's riskier to put your own experience in there. And, and what made you feel like that was the way to go? Gosh, that's a good question. I sort of write that way. I guess I always start out with my own experience when I write, um, which is something that people have pointed out to me. Um, and my detractors will tell you it's making everything about me, but I don't think it's that. I think it's trying to, um, relate I think it's it's trying to like build consensus and relate to people and try to make people understand and try to say, well, here's how I, I don't know exactly. I, I just, I do that a lot. I, I start off with my experience and then I move into like what I'm talking about. Um, but also I knew that I had experiences that needed to be talked about, whether it's online harassment or it's the way that, you know, so many women are allowed into sports media, but are limited to part-time jobs late at night or, you know, things like that. Um, and I had firsthand experience with that. So when I, you know, and I have to give a ton of credit to my agent, Noah Ballard and my editor, Myra Prosciutto, because they were the ones that were constantly urging me to put more of my own experiences into the book. So this is sort of what we came out with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's a lot of it is just how I write. Yeah. Well, and, but you also did a ton of reporting too. I mean, first of all, I think it works and, and honestly, it's like, it's more than just this, just being an abstract way that things are set up They're They're the way that, you know, you experience them. And I think that's important, but you, you did a lot of reporting and I want to read a quote because you talk about, you talk to, to Tommy John and you interview him for the book and you put this great quote in for Shepard. It's all about, it's all about how Melissa Lutke was kept out of the locker room. And Tommy mm-hmm. John talks about that experience and, and um, how, you know, and how she should have been let in. But anyway, you know, this quote, Tommy John saying, quote, Bowie Coon was a buffoon and an asshole. And I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Seriously. He said he was so ill-equipped to take that job. That stuff that happened under his watch. It was horrible for baseball. Isn't that amazing? Unbelievable. How do you not love Tommy John? I mean, <laughs> he's, he but, look, I mean, that to you. 
Uh, I think he's just like a pretty open, affable guy. And I've been friends with his son for a while. So, you know, I think he felt pretty comfortable, but I think he's also, you know, a person who just sort of tells it like it is. And he thought it was ridiculous that women reporters were being kept out of the locker room. And that's how he felt about it. You know, I mean, he's just, that's just kind of how he is. Um, But I love putting it in there because I, I felt like when I, a lot of times I don't name the people that I'm talking about. I'll just say like one of my colleagues, because it isn't really about who did what to me. You know, it's not like a revenge book. It's just sort of like, these are the experiences that happen to women. These are typical of what happened to women. Um, but I wanted to spill a little bit of tea where I could, because I felt, and I think Bowie Coon's dead anyway. So it was like, it was fine. <laughs> I do love that quote though. <laughs> no, that's, it's beautiful. And it, you put it right up there early, but you put it in the chapter that's at the very beginning of the book and, and, you know, which, which draws largely on your own interviews like that. And also this great documentary that we've talked about on this podcast before uh, that's called Let Them Wear Towels. Which everyone um, should watch immediately. Every, absolutely. Everyone should watch. And I use it in my classroom. I show it to my students when we talk about women in sports. It's like two ninety nine on YouTube. Just go watch it. Put us on pause. Go watch. Let them wear towels and then come back. It's it's less than a movie uh, that you're pulling off of on demand. Come on. Um, no, but it's ex- it's really well done and it's excellent. And, it, and you know, and it kind of kind of gathers a lot of those experiences of that kind of first wave of women into the locker room. But you set it up, I think, also because it it really does show that, you know, here you had women going into the locker room at the same time that women were allowed, you know, first to um, to be admitted into certain colleges uh, Mm -hmm. where women were entering the workforce and going into jobs that were predominantly male at the time. And I and I think back on that and, you know, really sports is in a lot of ways one of the few places where the argument about whether or not women belong is still happening. Right. Yep. Why? Absolutely right. Yeah. And why do you think that is? God, you've got me. I mean, I think that there is, you know, a corner of the world of men that really feel that sports is their thing that, you know, and we, it's the same way with the military, right? I mean, we still have that argument about the military. It's like these very testosterone driven physical, um, professions where people sort of feel this is our thing. And if you're coming into it, you're taking away from us. And I mean, I think, God, look at my Twitter mentions. I mean, I I think there's still men who feel that way. Um, But yeah, sports is definitely, and and guys have said this, you know, to me, like I I come to sports to get away from women. I don't want to hear a woman's voice when I turn on sports talk radio. So I, I think they look at this as their little divine right part of the world that women are infringing on. And why, you know, and, and I honestly feel like the thing that is going to make that eventually go away is is women's sports. And now that we're seeing and we're talking about the WNBA and we're talking about the NWSL and we're talking about the women's hockey leagues and that um, is what's going to make the difference because the attitude for so long has been, well, you guys don't play sports, so you can't talk about sports or you can't be involved in sports in any way. And, um, you know, Title IX was passed in what, 1972? And we've been playing sports for that. I mean, women have been playing sports long before that. But I mean, en masse, as part of the federal law, we've been playing sports since 1972. And they're still arguing with us about how women don't play sports. So I don't know. I mean, but I I really think that it's it's watching all these leagues finally become marketable and get media coverage that's going to turn the tide. Yeah, I think I think you're right. And you get into this in the book, obviously, 
but it's a pretty deep-rooted thing that women don't have a stake in the idea of, I think, more sports as a place of discussion than actually sports as a game huh? or sports as, as participation goes. Because, you know, and I, and I think, and I think this distinction, I was thinking about it and your book kind of clarified it for me because I always felt like participating in sports, I was born in 71. So the year before title nine and, you know, it, and certainly things were not like girls should play and can play, but I felt like I should be able to play, you know? And I kind of, so I grew up just playing in the neighborhoods and everything like you did. And, um, and I kind of, so then when I was thinking I wanted to be a sports writer, I kind of wasn't, I was thinking, well, I did play. So I should have access to this idea of sports as an industry. Mm -hmm. And that, and then, uh, which in, in the context of actually attempting to have a career, that's how I was radicalized. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, my attitude has always been, I grew up sitting on my dad's lap watching the bears, you know, like I know I can name all the players and do all the trivia and cite all the stats guys can do. Like I was an athlete. I was a gymnast. I was a diver. I played soccer and volleyball. Um, I know, you know, I, I just as much right to this as men do. And it wasn't really until I got my foot in the door that I started realizing how radical of an idea that is for men. Yes. And I think you, it comes into, it really comes into focus when you talk to somebody like Jessica Mendoza, right? Who played, Yep. who knows exactly, you know, what those situations are like that she's watching and describing. And even she can't get away from the uh, comments on her voice being too woman-y, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's really what it is. It's that, it, it's that she sounds like a woman. Right. Um, and I've noticed that there's a lot of voice theater in sports and you know, it's whether it's it's women who, in order to call games, make their voices deeper, more resonant, uh-huh. or it's men who do the same sort of thing. Uh-huh. You know, I, I don't think, Al, you know, did Al Michaels come out of the womb talking like that? I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he did. But certainly there are enough people now that try to sound like Al Michaels or some version of him that it's a it's it's actually it, it's a bit of, again, voice theater, I think. Well, yeah. And there's I feel like so many people wind up sounding like Harry Shearer's sports announcer on The Simpsons, which is just <laughs> like a mockery of like that voice. You know, and I, I never felt like I had to sound like that. Um, but I'm, I was shocked when I got into sports media by how many people have voice coaches. I mean, so many people have voice coaches. It's insane. Or have at least worked with a voice coach or, you know, paid a thousand dollars for a voice coach to spend a weekend with them, changing the way they talk. I don't, I mean, I've never really, I hate the way I sound. Don't get me wrong. Everybody does. Um, and I, when I hear myself, I sound higher than I do in my head and I sound cringier and I squeal when I get excited. Like I, I hate that about myself, but it's how I sound. Well, I don't think it's anything to hate. I think it's just, you know, it's just who you are kind of. And the thing is, is you haven't, you haven't successfully put yourself in the box of what it you think it should sound like, which is, a bit strange to me, honestly, because I do think that it, it, again, it is, it's the inability to conform that actually should be celebrated. Um, well, and the thing too is what is you, what is the female version of Al Michaels anyway? I have no idea what that sounds like. And I actually, because I don't think there is one, Julie, there isn't a way to sound like Al Michaels as a woman, because what is being communicated is masculinity and maleness. And a woman can never communicate that with her voice. I could try. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But no, but I think, but I think that's exactly right. And that's why you have like, you know, all of women like, you know, Susan Waldman, who, who every single woman who has ever tried to communicate with her voice in sports has heard the same thing, which is your voice is shrill and annoying. Yep. Shrill and annoying. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's why when Lindsay, when Lindy West called her book shrill, I was like, damn, <laughs> that's a great title. You're like another name. Take it. Yeah. That would have been perfect. <laughs> um, and you do, you do a lot with, I think in terms of like the, the, the kind of the modern way that women are forced out of spaces or told they don't belong in spaces, which of course are online. And you have a lot of experience with that. Um, but the interesting thing with Barstool, when you brought up Barstool and, you know, welcome to our Barstool fans who, who, who rate <laughs> us liberally. And who listen every week so they can complain about what we say. Right. But, but I think it's, you know, that kind of uh, the stochastic harassment that happens um, with, you know, somebody, a, a woman who talks about Barstool and then, and then the backlash of trolls, you really lay that out in an interesting way. And I know you said you were going to regret writing that, Mm -hmm. that chapter. Do you regret it yet? I mean, the book's not out yet. Um, but I, I mean, I will say that I knew the harassment was going to ramp up as I got closer to this and it, it definitely has. Um, and it's coming from a very specific segment of those fans, um, who are all, I'll just say it's Kirk Minahan fans. Um, he has a show, a podcast on Barstool. He used to be on WEEI in Boston and, um, they have been coming after me nonstop. They made a video about me, which I guess as far as insulting things go, it's pretty good. I mean, it's like me as a clown, me like, cause their whole thing is I lied about being a gymnast because now they think I'm too fat to be a gymnast. So therefore I'm lying about the whole thing because if there's one thing gymnasts have, it's a great relationship with food and we all maintain our 16 year old physiques our entire lives. That's a yeah, true story it, about gymnasts. It's um, crazy. It's just yes. crazy. So, I mean, that's their thing that, you know, I lie about everything and I make everything up and the book is full of lies and everything I've made up. Um, so, I mean, you know, they've been sort of ramping up and it's, it's hard because it's like every time I put something out, whether it's this podcast or a book or an article, they're there to downrate it. They're there to tell everyone how terrible it is. They're there to tell people, you know, what a liar I am. And the thing that I've really come to learn over the past couple of years is if you don't like someone on the internet, you will believe anything about them that people tell you. Um, so I know it's going to be bad. Um, I don't, you know, as of right now, I'm still glad it's in there. Talk to me in two weeks once this is out there and they can get their hands on it and see what I said. Um, but I, I feel that somebody had to say it and say it in a place that's not just sort of fleeting on the internet. Say it in, in words that are printed and put on a shelf. Uh, because it is, you know, for too long, we've been too afraid of these guys. And I have no doubt that they're going to try to ruin my life. Uh, but I just feel like someone has to say it. Yeah, I, and I appreciate that. I really do. Because I know, I know how challenging it can be to withstand, um, to withstand the the storm when it comes at you. Uh, and I think a lot of women who have, who are, who take part in public life have had that same experience. And you mentioned Lindy West earlier in the podcast, and, and she's someone who left Twitter because yeah. she just for her own health did not necessarily want to be engaging and giving people space in her head. And I, I think today I saw another woman. Yep. Who, Jama Aluo. 
yeah, who said, who said lately, it's been a space of such anxiety for me. I don't think it's a space where I, as a black woman can safely exist. Um, and I, and I, I fear that we, we do lose women and women of color to these, um, to the trolls. And, and I've been talking with my, I mean, in all honesty, with my agent and with, um, my editor and saying, you know, do I have to stay on Twitter after the book is out? Like, will it, will it harm my audience? And will you know, will I be able to sell another book if I don't bring that audience with me? Like, you know, and, and we'll see what happens, but I mean, I think every day, why am I, I mean, and it's, it's what Jama said today is exactly right. My anxiety over what's going to be said about me. What am I going to see every time I hit my mentions, you know, God forbid, I like, open it up one day and I'm trending on Twitter for some reason. That's like my worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I know it won't be for a good reason. It'll be for some shit somebody's saying about me. So, um, I don't know how much longer I am for Twitter either. If I, if, if they, my editor told me you can leave today and still sell another book, I would be gone. And that's the tension, isn't it? That it's that, I mean, I think it's important for women to have, to kind of have carve out a space and hold their territory when it comes to public discourse, does it have to be the same woman every single time? Can we pass that torch to somebody else and say, this yeah. is your leg of the relay? Um, because I do think that it gets, it, it does get exhausting and it takes up so much time in your head that, that I think it actually impairs your creativity and your ability to report. Well, it does. And you self-censor. I mean, I talk about that quite a bit. Like you, you, I mean, there's plenty of times when I just am like, oh God, I really want to weigh in on this, but I don't have the bandwidth today. And and I think what happens then is, is so many of us make that calculation that then a few people who do speak out are left twisting in the wind. And that's hard too. I don't want to leave other people out there for saying the right thing. Um, it's this constant balance between your mental health and what you think is the right thing. Yeah. And I, and I did, I did wonder about that because, because the, again, you talk about the balance of selling books and taking, you know, and, and having a, you know, being a columnist and, and having a podcast and being able to promote your work. And it's such an important platform to be able to do that. And, um, but then you're right. Then can you just go shut it down for a month? You know, maybe, right. maybe that's the thing. Maybe we all take a month off every, like, if it's like your vacation, yeah. <laughs> you just take a month off every year or six months off every year, depending. Well, and I have taken the, the Twitter app off my phone multiple times, um, which helps. The problem is that, um, you know, you don't, you miss the news that's happening then too. And one of the things I hate is how indispensable Twitter has become for news, that, you know, it's, it, that's where everything breaks now. So if you're not on Twitter, you're at a huge disadvantage, especially if you're working in media. Yeah. Uh, if you're waiting for stuff to show up on the New York times website, you're going to be right. You're going to be, you're going to miss it by hours. Yeah. I've thought about, you know, shutting down and just having a burner account where I only follow news people, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know what their answer is. I'm, I'm still working on it. Yeah, well, exactly. But then I don't know about you, but then I would also be very tempted to weigh in on stuff. I don't know. Back. <laughs> I probably would. I mean, that's unfortunately some part of my personality. I'm, I, I always feel like I have to speak up and I hate that about myself. <laughs> like, I wish I was a person who would, who was more of a shrinking violet, who was just like, Oh, who cares what they think? You know, my husband is great at that. He's always like, why do you care what those people think? Who cares? But I just do care. And I care deeply about some issues and, um, I just can never help myself. And this book is a great example. It's just me basically shooting my mouth off for 280 pages. Maybe that's what I like about it. Um, <laughs> you do you do describe a somebody who 
you feel didn't do something that you liked as quote an adult male who wears sports jerseys to work at a desk <laughs> very nice there's another guy who i described as looking like a thumb um it might be the same guy and my editor was like that's not nice and i was like yeah but he's not nice so i'm just believing it <laughs> No, that's, that's, you know, no, exactly right. Exactly right. But I think I like how you, you know, you did, you get to a lot of different things, the concept of manetizing, which is, you know, the way that uh, men in sports media clean up the, the reputation of another man, an athlete or a coach who did something um, disgusting, really. and. I think that's such a great, I know, I know you, you, you appropriated it from Levi Weaver, Mm -hmm. but it's, but still at the same time, I mean, it's such, I I think we need to have that in our vocabulary. I agree. I really hope it catches on. I just randomly threw it out there one day on Twitter. Like, what do you call it when other guys help us all forget the horrible thing one guy did? And Levi just pipes up and he's like manetizing. And I was like, damn it. I wish I had come up with that first. It's okay. He gave it to you. He did. I asked him if it was okay if I used it in the book and he said, yes. So I don't think he feels a lot of ownership in it. He just sort of threw it out there, but it was so perfect. That's the kind of person that you want to ask uh, for suggestions on a roller derby name. Right. You know, because you've got to have a clever roller derby name, but it's got to be relevant as well. And somebody who can just throw those out. That's a real, you know, you want to have them on call. I agree. I agree. Um, But that, yeah, but I just, I thought that was really interesting. And it's just, it just goes to, it's such a great way of uh, coalescing all of the problems around the way that these discussions take place in sports media and, or don't take place. Right. I mean, it's often it's often more of a um, process of omission than anything else. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the the thing in writing the book is, is being able to have those conversations in a way uh, where you have a captive audience. Because it's not like on social media where someone can just click out, although I'm sure people are reading it on their Kindles. But it's different than reading it on Twitter. And so many of these topics are topics we discuss on Twitter. And 240 characters is not enough to go into have nuance and context and talk about history and why people feel the way they do and, you know, all those kinds of things. So I think that for me, writing this was a way of all you people who have screamed at me because I said this about this player, here's why, here's the entire story. Here's a chapter on it. You know, now call me the, you know, C word after it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens when it's available to the general public in five days. Uh, but I'm, I'm really sort of girding my loins for it. I really am extremely anxious about it, which it's not really how you want to feel about, you know, publishing your first book, but. No, I love it. I, I, what I love about it is that because I, I've often considered writing books and somebody once asked me, um, would you think this would be a good, this book that you want to write? Do you think it would be a good Father's Day book? And I thought, no, <laughs> I don't <laughs> I think this is a good Father's Day book that I have in my head. And I love that you did not write a good Father's Day sports book or even a really good Mother's Day sports book. Yeah, you, you know, you wrote a true sports book. And well, the weirdest thing, so the weirdest thing about it is when you're trying to sell a nonfiction book, there's a lot of um, hand wringing about like where it goes, right? And I was sort of like, 
I want to write a feminist book about sports, but it's not a sports book. I'm like, I want it to be, I want people to feel when they read it the same way that I felt when I read Rebecca Traster or Jessica Valenti or Soraya Shamali or Leah, excuse me, Ijema Aluo or any, you know, that's, that's the kind of book I want it to be in that space. And I guess my biggest fear is that it's going to get like shunted off onto the sports shelf at the bookstore. And it's going to be there with like, oh, here's a biography of Arnold Palmer and here's Julie's <laughs> book. And here's, here's a coffee table book on like golf courses you know, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so I, I was really lucky that I, I got an editor who saw the way that I wanted it to be. And, and I hope that it, it finds its way into that space. Yeah. I mean, and that has been the difficulty, I think, when it comes to not just selling books, but also where, where do you put these ideas in sports media? Right. We, it's something, it's a phenomenon that we see happening. And it's, I think it is, it's not that we need to become the story, but even the stories that you talk about, I think, suffer the same fate where it's like, well, this isn't a raw, raw sports story. So what are we going to do with it? Right. You know, and, and I just, whether it's, whether it's your own personal story or it's those stories that fall into that category, there needs to be a space for them in a way that we can tell them because they are part of the American sports story. Uh, even though they cannot be monetized by broadcasters. So in some ways, I think as more and more sports become about um, the broadcasting and, well, we want to feel like, you know, we're all fans here and um, where it's, we've become, you know, sports has become relentlessly positive in a lot of ways as well. And, and I kind of feel like there has to be a space for the stories that are just reality-based rather than, you know, looking to promote a product or an, a league or an athlete. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think ESPN's doing a great job with that with the 30 for 30. I mean, I think that's one of the few places in real sports as well, where we yeah. we're at HBO, where we get to talk about issues more in depth. And the thing that I always tell everybody, and I feel like I've said this ad nauseum at this point, people can probably recite it by heart, but we have always worked out our issues in this country through sports whether it's Jackie Robinson integrating baseball before America was integrated, whether it's Billie Jean King and equality for genders and for the LGBTQ community, whether, you know, no matter what it is, whether it's Muhammad Ali in the Vietnam War or Black Lives Matter last summer, sports has always been the entree into those issues for us as a society. And so why not feminist issues as well? It's it's no less a book about um women in the workplace and equal pay and uh, domestic violence and sexual assault and the way women need to support each other and all those things because it uses the lens of sports. It is, in my mind, at heart, a a feminist book and um, sports is just the way we get to the issue. Yeah. And one of the big feminist issues that you bring up, maybe it's not feminist issues, but the issue that women face in the workforce is this idea that there can only be one of us in mm-hmm. any given space at any given time. And if there are two of us, we are in direct competition with each other. It must, it must fight to the death. Um, and I, you know, I've experienced that in the workforce uh, in the past, and it was incredibly unpleasant. You know, somebody that you think might be an ally and who turns out to be quite the opposite. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, and I don't think it's a personal thing. I think it's the structures that we're fallen into. And you point this out, I think, really well by mentioning that it often happens in a studio show where a woman can be the host and maybe one other woman can be there as an analyst Um, or the opposite of that, which is where we have an all woman episode of, 
you know, first take or whatever it is, which is by virtue of its being all women, completely oppositional, right? It's set right. up as oppositional, right? The normal quote unquote first take. So I, I think that that then becomes this idea of, well, if I'm going to get on X show, I have to replace Mina Kimes or I have to replace Jackie McMullen or whoever it is, because they, we can only, we're, we are so limited in number by virtue of being female in this sports space. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, um, it, you know, it, it's, it, I feel like this is something that's put on us very young, that, that other women are competition, that other women are competition for men, they're competitions for attention, they're competitions for all these things that we set young girls up for telling them are things they should want to attain. Um, you know, I, I, it's tough. I, I would have been a person who in my twenties and maybe even into my early thirties would have said, Oh, I'm a guy's girl. I have more fun. I'm getting along better with guys. That's not true. I get along much better with women. Um, but it wasn't until I got into sports media and I really needed women that I stopped seeing them as competition and started seeing them as allies, um, because they were the ones that came to my rescue when I was being you know, harassed into the ground by people. Um, it was women who sent me notes of encouragement and picked me up and dusted me off and sort of shoved me back out there. And, um, that is, I, I'm sad that it took me to my forties to get to that point in life. Um, and certainly I played, you know, sports with, with women growing up and I had great women friends and stuff, but in the workplace, it was never women that I looked to, to bond with or saw as someone who was experiencing the same thing as me until 2014, 2015, you know, like that time period. And since then I've been, I've grown as a person tremendously, I think, in uh, making sure that I am there for other women as well as they've been there for me. But I do think it's a trap that a lot of us fall into. And sadly, by the time we realize where the mistake has been made, um, you know, we've already ruined relationships with people. Well, yes. I mean, I think though, that one of the good things about your book, one of the good things about this podcast, one of the good things about, you know, awesome, the association for women in sports media is that I think we do. Cause I, cause I, I, you know, I've kind of felt the same way. I felt like I had to be a renegade to want to get into sports in the first place, mm -hmm. you know? So, so I kind of felt like a renegade my first couple of years in the business. And, you know, and I was always the only woman playing basketball, right? So I was used to that. It felt like a natural environment to me. Um, but I'm hoping that the next generation of women uh, coming into the business and each subsequent one, you know, ha has the legacy in front of them. And I think that your book and the first chapter of your book the 30 for 30s, let them wear towels, um, you know, the history of ESPNW and the work, some of the work that's been done there. Um, I, I do think that, you know, there, there now are spaces and voices uh, and we have our oral histories and we have our traditions and we have mm -hmm. our, you know, the hands that are waiting to pull other women in. Yeah, it's such a great point. And, you know, the women featured in Let Them Wear Towels, whether it's Leslie Visser or Christine Brennan or Claire Smith or Melissa Ludke or, you know, whoever the person is, those have been the women that have like embraced our generation with open arms and been like, welcome, we're so glad you're here. Um, and so I feel like I owe it to them to do that to the next generation. And it's been absolutely, I got to throw Andrea Kramer in there too. It is absolutely Nancy Armour. It's absolutely been them leading by example that has got me to where I am today. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I do, you know, and I think that that's, um, that's a sense of solidarity that exists. And, you know, it wasn't until I didn't meet Leslie Visser probably maybe like three or four years into my career. And, and it was such a thrill 
you know, as we talked about last week on the podcast with Leslie and, you know, and I, and had I, um, I, I mean, I think her, the attitude and the warmth that she extended to me really has formed my way of looking at the, you know, the informal and formal networks of women that exist in this business. And so I'm yeah. very grateful for that. She set the tone for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great. Well, look, Julie, yes. thank you for writing this book. I just, I think it's, you know, I think it's a, a very clear eyed look at the business and some of the structures and pitfalls that exist in the business. And I certainly hope that people will read it and there are a lot of truths in it. And I, we've needed, we need all of the feminist sports books that we can get so that there can be, they can be their own section at the strand. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Feminist sports books. Can you imagine? That'd be fantastic. A hundred percent. Honestly, Jane, like your opinion, not like, um, your opinion means so much to me on this. So I was sort of like, you know, that emoji where the guy is like smiling through like forced teeth. Like that's sort of how I am the whole time you're reading it. Cause I just, I'm like, what's God, what is Jane going to think? Cause you're such a terrific writer and not only that, but you're such a terrific, brilliant mind when it comes to this stuff. Uh, I, I was really not concerned, but a little bit anxious about how, you know, what you would think. And so I, I'm glad to hear that, that it sort of checks boxes for you. That makes me feel good. A hundred percent. I think it's a, I think it's a really necessary part of the library that tells the story of our, of our business, really important part of it and really clear eyed. And I appreciate you wrote it. And yet you didn't have to worry at all. Cause obviously the reason, <laughs> the reason I'm a dead spin is to do this podcast with you, which um, is just ridiculous, which is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, everyone I know is always like, you know, Jane McManus. And I'm like, Oh yeah, Jane, you know? And, and so for you wanting to do something with me, I'm still kind of blown away by it. Well, listen, it's been good because we can discuss things like this. And I totally, you know, and I totally get where you're coming from in your book. So, I mean, yeah, a hundred percent. Yes. I wanted to do Thank you. With you. Believe me. Well, that means a lot. Gosh, I don't know what to say. For once I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> so next week, uh, we will be back with another terrific guest. You guys are gonna be really excited for the next guest. I know we're really excited for her too. Uh, so we hope that you'll give us a follow on Twitter at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. If I'm still on Twitter, we hope that <laughs> if you like the podcast, you'll give us a rating uh, over at Apple Podcasts and help offset some of the other ratings. Uh, and uh, we hope that you guys will take a read over at our stuff at Deadspin. And we will see you next week here on The Ladies Room.